there's nothing I enjoy better than a good mystery. I really do. How many people like a mystery? That's, you kind of enjoy those things, you know. And, you know, I, the other night I was watching the movie The Orient Express. And it's a, it's a whole about murder on the plane. You know, it's murder, murder on the train, I should say. Murder on the Orient Express. And, you know, and I'm loving it and getting into it and enjoying it. And my wife's doing anything but she can to watch the TV. I mean, she's over in the kitchen. She's humming away. Anything she can to avoid it. Because that's just not her thing. And for some of you, a good mystery may not be your thing. For me, I just love it. I, I love, a, you know, Sherlock Holmes or the Hardy Boys. Or, you know, my wife would read Nancy Drew, I think, when she was younger. And, and all of these things, you know, that people just love. Who done it? A really good who done it. You know, sign me up. I'll be there. I enjoy that very much, and and I'm sure that most of you do. Well, you know, there's some unsolved mysteries in history, and some ones that you'll recognize. Maybe one or two that you won't. The first one is who was Jack the Ripper. That's the first one that a lot of people think about, and nobody's ever come up with that. There's been a few theories, but no one's ever come up to the answer to that. Where is Jimmy Hoffa? Now, if you don't know who Jimmy Hoffa was, he was the basically the crime boss of the, uh, of the uh, Teamsters, and uh, he just disappeared one night, and they've never seen from him or don't have any idea where he is. Number three, where is Cleopatra's tomb? And uh, there's been some search on that, and, and they're trying to find Cleopatra's term, they've, uh, tomb. They've looked in the Valley of the Queens. They don't seem to be able to find that. And so that's a question that's there. Here's one you'll all recognize. Who killed JFK? You know, there's the whole story of the two guns and the single gun and, and all of that stuff. And so that's a question that has been difficult to answer. There's one here that Greg will love, our, our caretaker. It, is there a money pit on Oak Island? He's just finished a book on that, and uh, there's a whole TV show on that, and, and it goes on, and the only reason it keeps going is they just keep making money. There's a money pit, all right, but it's not, it's not on the Oak Islands. Somebody's making a lot of money on that. Here's one you probably don't, never heard of. I had not heard of this before. Is there a Copper Scroll treasure real? Is the Copper Scroll treasure real? And you say, well, what is that? Well, actually, back in 1948, when they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, they actually discovered a Copper Scroll, and on that scroll was written this huge treasure. It describes this amazing treasure. I mean, it would uh, fix the world economy kind of thing, and, uh, and, uh, and people have never been able to trace that down. Is it real? That's a question in history. Number seven, where's the fate of the Ark of the Covenant? What happened to the Ark of the Covenant? Remember in 586, uh, Nebuchadnezzar and uh, the Babylonians came down into uh, the southern part of Jerusalem and the Lord Kingdom, the southern kingdom, and they took back all the treasures. And they took back everything that was there. And uh, did the Ark of the Covenant go back with that? Uh, was it buried? I personally think it was probably hidden by the priests. They recognized how important it was. There was a siege that was laid, so they would have time uh, to do that. It's probably hidden in the catacombs underneath uh, the temple. They're now working in that area and excavating that area. Maybe they'll come across it. Uh, we know that it needs to be back by uh, the uh, tribulation period. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there. Sorry, that was my fault. Uh, number eight, were the hanging gardens of Babylon real? And it's considered to be one of the seven uh, natural wonders of the world, seven man-made wonders of the world. And they were considered to be, uh, some people say, 70 feet tall. Some people say taller than that. These beautiful hanging gardens that were there and amazing. But were they real? Uh, number nine, is there a city of Atlantis? 
You know, does it actually exist? Is it out there? Uh, that's a question that people have asked. It's one of the uh, ones in history. And then here's one that probably makes more sense is, what was Jesus really like? You know, we, we, we know that we have the writings of the New Testament, and we know that there's a recorded there, but the Bible tells us that the, the, uh, the volumes of books could not contain uh, what Jesus was like or what he was like. Or did he have a sense of humor? Was it, you know, we don't know these things, really. What was he like here on earth? And we know from the New Testament, we know from the Bible what we see, but there was certainly more there that we do not know. Well, Paul's writing about a great mystery here in Romans chapter 11. He's continuing on with this study, and he's talking about the Israelites and how God is going to redeem them one day. And so in uh, Romans chapter 11, there's a great mystery that he wants to explain. He wants us to help us to understand. Now, he's coming to the end of this portion from chapter 1 to the end of chapter 11 about this whole argument that he's made. And it's a great argument, and he's bringing it to a head, and he wants us to understand that. In verse 25 of chapter 11, it says, lest you be wise in your own sight. And if you remember, there's this sense that the Gentiles may have been thinking that, wow, God has dropped the Jews, now picked up us, so we've got it made and we're wise. And this idea of somehow we've sought after God or we deserve God somehow or something like that. And so he wants to deal with that. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery. He's writing about a mystery. Brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of, this, of their disobedience. So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to discipline, or disobedience I should say, that he may have mercy on all. On the depth of, and the, of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. What a wonderful mystery this is that God reveals to us through Paul as he writes this book. Father, we ask your blessing as we look into your word today. We are very thankful, Father, that you have chosen to allow us to have eternal life. That's amazing that you would pour out your, your blessing upon us, that you would send Jesus to die on the cross for us to pay the penalty of our sin, that we could have eternal life. How amazing that is. And Lord, help us to understand that this was part of your wonderful plan, your amazing plan, Father, as you put this together. And help us, to Father, to realize that it's not by chance that we're in the time of the Gentiles now. And it's not by chance that you're going back to dealing with the Jewish nation in the days ahead. 
We thank you for your amazing plan. We thank you for your wisdom. We thank you for your knowledge. And we thank you, Father, for all that you continue to do. Bless this time together now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul, of course, is dealing with the most amazing mystery of all. Why would God care about you? Think about that for a minute. Have you ever thought about that? Why would God care about me? Seven billion plus people in the world, and God cares about me. He cares about you. He knows the number of hairs on your head. That's an amazing thing. Uh, I, you know, it's just uh, tremendous when you think about it. Now, for some of us, that's getting easier all the time. For God to keep track of that, it's getting less and less of a number. But, I mean, the truth is he knows the number of hairs on our head. He knows everything about us. He knows our personality. He knows what we're doing. He knows our hurts, our likes. He knows everything there is that could possibly be about us. Not only that, he knows everything is going to happen to us. That God is this amazing God. He cares about us. He has developed this plan for us that we will come into a relationship with him. Who is man that thou art mindful of him? The author of Hebrews writes. Who is man that God would even think about us? That God would even spend time on us? And yet he knows us tremendously. He knows our concerns, our hurts, our desires. He knows all of those things. And so as we begin to go through this passage, we talk about God's amazing life or God's amazing plan and how that works. And God has this amazing life plan for us and how he is. First of all, notice God's amazing purpose. God's amazing purpose. Verse 25 says, let you be wise in your own sight. I want you to understand this mystery. Here's the mystery. Brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. And so as Paul writes this, he's talking about the fact that Israel's eyes have been blinded. Now, when he says partial hardening, because he's talking about there's a remnant that's still being kept out, that God's keeping out a remnant that he's going, he's bringing through this time. And he says there's a partial hardening on them so that the fullness of the Gentiles could come in. Do you realize that it is God's plan that you come to know Christ as your personal Savior? It's God's plan that we are redeemed. It's God's plan. It didn't happen by chance. It wasn't something that we dreamt up. God brought us to that place, and he brought us to that place for his purpose, his plan, this amazing purpose that he has. It says this, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, some people think that that's a number, that somehow God has a particular number in mind, uh, whether it's 2 billion or whatever it is. When those people, when those Gentiles get saved, that somehow God's going to flip back at that point to begin to deal with Jews. But it's not a number. It's more got to do with time. Until is the word time. It carries with it the idea of a set time that's there. The fullness of the Gentiles is this sense of the completeness. So when there comes a time when there's a completeness of God's plan of the Gentiles has come in, that's talking about salvation. So when there comes a time when God is set down and God is ordained and God is put back in place, there will come this time when God will stop as it were, reaching primarily out to the Gentiles and begin to reach out to the Jews again. You've got to remember that Paul is very Jewish-centered, if I can put it that way, very Israel-centered. That's his family, after all. That's where he comes from. That's his background. And he says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. And so Paul says that God in this mystery somehow has hardened the hearts of Israel because of the rejection of the Messiah, of Jesus. And we heard about that, thanks to Pastor Dave, and the rejection that's there. 
And now he's working with the Gentiles until a particular time comes that he is set down. And then he'll go back and deal with all Israel that Israel will be saved. What an amazing thing that is. Only God could come up with a plan like that. Only God could put that together. And from our point of view, it seems like it's a little strange that maybe the first plan didn't go right and God switched to plan B and then he's going to go back to plan A again. Or It just seems that way, but that's not the case at all. God had this plan completely put in place. His purpose then is being fulfilled. He goes on and he says, The deliverer will come from Zion who will banish ungodliness from Jacob. He said, there is coming a day, it is set down in stone, as it were, that there is coming a deliverer from Zion, Jesus Christ, whose feet will land upon the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, in Zion, and he will come and he will rescue his people. And it tells us that, and he'll banish all ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them. God is going to establish a new covenant with the Jews. He plans to do that. That's part of his purpose. And when I take away their sins, he will do that. And that's coming future from now. In uh, Hebrews chapter uh, 8 and verse 8, it says, For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Jacob. And so we know that God's going to go back and he's going to deal with the Jews and the Jewish nation will come and be saved. There's this whole sense that God is writing in this. As regards to the gospel, verse 28, they are enemies of God for your sake, but as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. You know, he's telling us, he said, when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Jews have rejected that. That's the situation they're in, and yet it's for our benefit. But when it comes to election, that they are God's people, that has not been forgotten, and God will again bring them back to that place of working with them again. Now, he says this, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That's a great promise to Israel. God called them at one time, called Abraham from the heir of Chaldees, blessed them, chose them as God's chosen people, took them and put them on that track as it were, and he poured out upon them and he said, hey, I'm, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now, why is that? Well, if you and I promise somebody something, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Like, Jacob, uh, Jason, I, I could promise you lunch tomorrow, but I could end up being busy and we can't make that happen. That never happens. Don't count on it. That never happens uh, to God. It never happens to God. God already knows the future. He's already got it figured out. He already knows the plan. So when God makes a promise, God makes a calling, he fulfills that, and he promises that he's going to fulfill that with Israel. Now, what about you? How does that apply to you and me? How does that apply? Have you ever thought about that, that your salvation is irrevocable, that your calling is irrevocable? You know, there are days when, you know, you go through life and you think, wow, I'm going through all of this. I'm struggling with my sin. I'm struggling with this habitual sin. I'm struggling with my faith. I'm struggling with these things. Where do I stand with God? Do you realize that God knew that you're going to be just like you are when he chose to save you? Think about that for a moment. It's not like all of a sudden, wow, I didn't expect that. I, boy, I, no, God knew that before. God chose us 
God saved us and God is keeping us. God has done that and we do not have to worry about, now, should we live for him? Absolutely. But if we mess up, then we know that God still cares and loves for each one of us. It's irrevocable. And God has taken us and he has placed us in the palm of his hand. And he wraps his hand around us that absolutely no one, or I would suggest anything, including sin, can pluck us out of there. We belong to God. He's called us. He's placed us on the track to heaven, to salvation. And there's absolutely nothing that can return that around. For God foreknew his purpose was laid down. He has an amazing purpose in his life, in our lives. And God is, and Paul, of course, is dealing with this absolutely amazing calling that he has. He goes on from there, says verse 30, for just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. You know what he's saying? He's saying even this idea that they have turned away from God is part of God's purpose. It's part of God's plan. He's, he's using that. He didn't take him by surprise. And now that you're obedient, he said they're being disobedient, but there's coming a place where God will show mercy to them again and pour out upon them, and they will come to that place of salvation just like you and I can today. And then he says this, for God has consigned all to disobedience that he have made mercy on all. That's a great statement. You see, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And God has assigned or given us this sense of disobedience. We're all there. Not that God ordained it, but God allowed it that he may have what? Mercy on all. And by that, he means on the Jews. He means on the Gentiles. He means on you and me. What an amazing purpose God has. I think Paul is just so blown away by this at this point. I think Paul is amazed at this. So not only do we have God's purpose, we have God's amazing wisdom. Because you go on from there and look at verse 33. It says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. You see, Paul is absolutely blown away by this. Paul is absolutely blown away by this. He can't help, you can't help but excuse me, notice his overflowing praise of God. I love this word, oh. It's kind of like, oh, oh, the depth. He's just blown away by this, of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. He is absolutely amazed. One of the reasons I like to teach is because when you're teaching a concept that's kind of a little, little tough and it's a little hard to teach that concept, and all of a sudden you see it in the eyes, that aha moment. When people go, ah, oh, I get it. I understand it. I realize what's happening there. That's exactly what's happening to Paul here. I think Paul is beginning to have or is having one of those aha moments. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Now, the truth of the matter is he's just written the first 11 chapters. But he's written it under the guidance, the direction, the outpouring, the spirit of God has told him exactly what to write. And I'm not quite sure Paul gets it up to this point. I'm not sure he fully understands what he has written. And now as he looks back through this, 
He's absolutely amazed at what God has written, what God has done to the place where he just goes, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. He just pours out in gratitude for this amazing God and what he has done. I'm sure that he begins to rehearse the last 11 chapters that he has written. He begins to say, hey, wow, does that ever make sense at this point? He thinks about the first three chapters with the, which dealt with condemnation, how the whole world could not be redeemed of their own accord, how every person had fallen short of the glory of God. I think he's just absolutely amazed by that. And then he thinks about salvation and justification and the outpouring of righteousness that's found in chapters 3 to 5. And then the, how God works in the Christian life in chapters 6 to 8 in the word sanctification and then in chapters 9 to 11, God one day restoring Israel and you have restoration. And so as he thinks back through that, he thinks everybody is lost. That is the idea of just absolutely everybody being lost. And then, then people coming to know Christ and being justified and being sanctified. And now how God is bringing this plan together. He is absolutely blown away by who God is. Oh, the depth. Oh, the depth of the riches. Oh, how deep the riches of God are. Oh, the wisdom and knowledge of God. It's past finding out. You can't figure it out. You can't understand it, so to speak. You know, I'd like to say that the omniscience of God is found in salvation, but the truth of the matter is that's the point that he's making. It's beyond our understanding because he goes on and he says, Oh, the unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. You can't figure God out. You can't understand God. I think that we are given just a glimpse in the word of God as who God is. I think there's a fair bit there from our point of view, but I don't think we even have a beginning of an understanding of who this amazing God is. When I was driving in this morning, I came up at a Hampton and I come up over the hill there. And as I'm coming over the hill, it just goes fog. Just boom, you've had those experiences, right? Where you can't see two feet in front of the car and you're wondering, what am I going to do? I can't see. And all of a sudden you hit the brake. And, you know, I think that's about how much we see a God. I, I think we see this little glimpse and there's so much more of him that we don't understand. I, I can put it in the form of time because that's the only thing I understand. But probably the certain, you know, 10,000 or 20,000 years We'll just be standing in heaven with our mouth open going, ah, oh, oh. I think it's just going to be total blown away by God, totally blown away by who he is. We're just going to have an aha moment after an aha moment after an aha moment of this amazing God that we serve. And so we see this amazing God. Third thing we find here is God's amazing grace. God's amazing grace because it goes on and it says verse 35 and 36, oh who has given to him that he might be repaid. Who has given to him that he might be repaid? What's that mean? Pastor Dave, if you could come up here for a minute and uh, 
He just loves me when I pick on him. Yeah, come on up here for a minute. Now you have your wallet on you, right? <laughs> could you reach in, well, could you reach in your wallet and uh, give me some uh, oh a five dollar bill? Thank you, appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. Uh, no, but you know it's five dollar bill. Well, Dave, you know I just feel like I really want to bless you today. I just want to help you out, and I want to give you five bucks. Gee, yeah. Now, do you feel like you owe me something? No. No, not at all. Why? It is your money, right? Exactly. Well, you know, sometimes we have that attitude with God. We kind of have this idea, God, you know, but the point that he's making is who can give to God? Who can give to God? Who could possibly give God who owns everything? Everything belongs to him. And it's not us just giving our lives to God and saying, wow, God, you're so blessed that you got me. It's this overwhelming sense of gratitude that God would pour out upon us. This amazing God who owes us nothing has given us everything. Isn't that amazing that he would do that, send his own son, give us the gospel, provide for us? And Paul is just amazed as he begins to think about this. We ought to be amazed at who he is. God has poured out his riches, his amazing grace, not because he had to, but because he chose to. He loves us. He cares about us. This is an amazing love that he has. Who are we? We are the objects of the mercy and the grace uh, of him. We are his children. We are saved. We are kept. We are blessed by him. That's who we are when we know Christ is our personal savior. And it cannot be revoked. It cannot be removed. We have this eternal relationship with this amazing God. For it goes on and says this, For from him and through him and to him are all things. From him, creation, through him, he sustains it and keeps it all. And to him, he is worthy of all praise and everything belongs to him. We should be blown away by that amazed by the fact that he is an amazing God that from the beginning of the world had this plan that he's working that included our salvation that he has brought us to this place and placed us into the family of God and pours out blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon us. I think that sometimes our faith instead of being a aha moment with God has become an oh-hum moment with God. Sometimes our faith can get to the place where it's oh-hum. Same yesterday, day before. I'm just going through the motions. And I think we need to come back to those aha moments and realize how amazing God is and something God reveals in his word just amazes you. When's the last time that happened? You opened the word of God, you're reading it, and you went, wow, I never saw that before. In prayer, when God speaks to you through his spirit, and the sense that God is at work in your life, that ought to be an aha moment, not a ho-hum moment. When was the last time you were amazed by him, by his plan, by his wisdom, by his purpose? Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Totally amazed by the depth, how deep 
his riches run and his wisdom and knowledge, blown away by his unsearchable, inscrutable judgments and ways. Recognize that God is over everything, that from him and through him and to him all things exist. When was the last time you said with Paul here at the end of this passage, to him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. God deserves all praise. He deserves our very best. He deserves us to lift up and have an aha moment with him daily. Move away from Oham. I'm just tired of doing this. Life just doesn't seem to get any better to getting to know God deeper and be blown away by who he is. We need to have an attitude of gratitude, a heart of praise for this amazing God and what he has done on our behalf. How wonderful he is, how deserving he is of our praise. Father, I thank you so much for your word today. There may be someone here that doesn't know you as personal Savior, who's never come face to face with the reality that you love them so much that you sent Jesus to die on the cross for them. Oh, Father, I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that, Lord, you would reach out to them and they would accept you as personal Savior, accept your free gift. It's not us giving ourselves to you. You don't need anything. It's us receiving from you in your mercy, in your grace, in your kindness. The fact that you would pour out upon us is absolutely amazing. Help us to receive that free gift of salvation if we don't know you today. And then as believers, Lord, help us to move away from the ho-hum. Oh, yeah, here we go again. I got to do this. I got to do that. I got to be part of this. I need to do that to this sense of excitement of this amazing God that we serve. Help us to have an aha moment of how amazing you are, how wonderful you are, how great you are. And then, Lord, help us to have an attitude of gratitude. What a great God that we serve in Jesus' name.